The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. We are in Psalm 73 as we continue our series, Heart Cries, looking through the Psalms and just uh, gleaning from the wisdom of this, this beautiful book that has so much to say to us. And it taps in to that emotional part of our being. And I hope that you've been getting as blessed and encouraged through these studies as I know I have. And just I just so enjoyed Sean's study last week. And I'm excited about the word that I have for us this evening. So um, let's go ahead and open to Psalm 73. The title of my message for us tonight is When Life Doesn't Seem Fair. When Life Doesn't Seem Fair. And I want to set things up like this. One of the strangest lawsuits in U.S. court history was filed back in September of 2007. That's when Nebraska Senator at the time, Ernie Chambers, filed a lawsuit against God. That's right. The lawsuit sought a permanent injunction against God's interference in this world and charged him with causing all kinds of natural disasters and allowing calamitous catastrophes resulting in the widespread death, destruction, and terrorization of millions upon millions of the Earth's inhabitants without mercy or distinction. Now, eventually, the lawsuit was thrown out and dismissed. The court ruled that since God, they didn't know God's address, there was no way to, for them to notify him that he was being sued. And so the, the case was dropped. This, of course, didn't sit well with Senator Chambers, who disagreed with the ruling. But since there was nothing he could really do about it, he eventually let it go. Now, here's the thing about all that. I don't think that Chambers is alone in wanting to put God on trial, right? Like the question, why would a good God allow bad things to happen in this world is something that gnaws at a lot of us. And perhaps it's something that some of you have even been wrestling with. Here we are dealing with a global pandemic that is causing death among literally millions of people around the world. We, what's just as troubling though is the fact that oftentimes good things happen to bad people. So we have bad things happening on a global scale and then we see good things happening to bad people. And this goes against everything we teach our kids, right? We teach our kids growing up that cheaters never prosper and that the bad guy never wins and they always get what's coming to them in the end and crime doesn't pay. But, but is that really true? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes it feels like crime does pay. Cheaters do prosper. And sometimes the bad guy does win. At the same time, we look out at a world and we see people who are trying to honor God and trying to do right by their fellow man and trying to, to do what is fair and just and play by the rules. We see those people struggling to just get by. And it leaves us wondering, if God is so good, then why does life feel so unfair? Enter Asaph. That's the question that he found himself struggling through in the 73rd Psalm. Now, a bit of background on this guy. Asaph was one of three worship leaders in Israel during the reign of King David. So it was his responsibility to lead the nation in song and usher them into the presence of the Lord. But at this particular moment in his life, Asaph didn't feel like worshiping. 
Because everywhere that he looked, he saw the wicked flourishing and prospering all around him and it robbed his joy and it sapped his faith. And as he noodled on that thought and began to pull on that thread, he just came unglued and untethered. He desperately needed help from God to understand. His faith, it was on the verge of falling apart. Luckily for us, Asaph decided to process his emotions and his struggles with a paper and pen. And the result of that is the 73rd Psalm. So let's go ahead and begin reading in verse one. Here's what it says. He writes in the first verse, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God is good. Somebody on the other side of the screen, say the second part of that. All the time, God is good. Listen, in this life, there are going to be things that, for whatever reason, don't add up. But something I learned a long time ago when I was in Bible college is, You should never throw out what you do know to be true about God for what you don't understand. Does that make sense? Don't ever trade what you do know to be true about God for what you don't know. And one of the things we know to be true beyond a shadow of a doubt is that God is good. As a kid, many of us learned to pray this prayer. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for this food. By his hand, we are fed. Thank you, Lord, for daily bread. It's an old prayer that instills a simple truth. God's goodness. And this goodness of God, it's something that is an intrinsic quality to God. It's not just an attribute of God. It describes him in his essence. Heck, even the word good is derived from the word God. Now, you should know that this is something that distinguishes the God of the Bible from the various gods that you can read about in the tales and myths and legends of Greek and Norse mythology, right? If you've ever read those stories, you know that their gods are vengeful and mean and capricious and and spiteful. Not our God, not the God of the Bible. He is good through and through. It's a defining characteristic, I think the psalmist had it right when he wrote this, and this is Psalm 119, verse 67. You are good and the source of good. So he's not just good, he's the source of all good things. And then he went on to say, train me in your goodness. Now let me tell you why I think it's so important that we hold on to this truth. It's important because this is precisely one of the things that Satan is constantly going to come against. You see, constantly Satan is trying to get us to to question or even doubt the goodness of God. And this has been his strategy for as long as there have been people walking this earth. Go all the way back to the the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And and there in that scene, Satan slithered up to Eve in the form of a certain serpent. And he began to cast a, a seed of doubt in her mind concerning the goodness of God when he said to her, you're not going to die if you eat this fruit. The reason that God doesn't want you to eat it is because he's holding out on you. And he knows that the moment you taste of this delicious, delectable fruit, you're going to become like him. Now, was any of that true? Of course not. The only reason God had forbidden them from eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is because he wanted to protect them and keep them safe from something he knew that would be destructive towards them. But did they listen? Of course not. 
They, cho they chose instead to listen to Satan's lies and the rest of the story, as they say, is, is history. But the thing for you and I to note about all of that is that his strategy then continues to be his strategy now. He still wants us to doubt the goodness of God in our lives, which is why it is paramount that we hold this as a core foundational truth that we build our lives on. God is good. And, and that's where Asaph begins, and I'm so glad he did. But then you'll notice the first word of the second verse says, but. Now, you know what that word means, right? Anytime you hear the word but, it basically negates everything that you've said just before it. So guys, when a girl tells you how great you are and, and just how wonderful she thinks you are and then says, but, that means you're about to get dumped, right? <laughs> and so Asaph says, God is good, but, but as for me, man, my feet, they had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous heart comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Now listen to his conclusion in verses 13 and 14. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishment. In essence, what the psalmist is telling us here is, man, I was on the verge of walking away from the whole thing and just washing my hands of my Christian faith or my belief in God. And what was it that caused him so much angst? Well, he tells us plainly in verse three. He looked around and became envious when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes to great lengths describing just how great their lives seem to him through this lens that he's looking. He says in verse four, they had no struggles and their bodies are healthy and they're strong. Man, they can eat whatever they want and they still have a six pack. Meanwhile, I'm here trying to serve the Lord. And if I just so much as drive by a Krispy Kreme donuts, I've gained five pounds. He goes on in verse five, he says, they're free from common human burdens. He's effectively saying, from where I sit, it looks like the wicked just have an easy button that they can push on life. He goes on and kind of summarizes everything for us in verse 12 when he says their lives are carefree. They just go on amassing wealth. They're, the wicked get richer and richer. Man, their, their kids are well-behaved and have perfectly straight teeth. None of them need braces. They don't wake up with morning breath. Their cars never break down and their bank accounts are full. Their lives are just perfect. Now, is all of this true? <laughs> of course not. But as they say, perception is reality. Now, the truth is, the wicked suffer just as much as the godly, right? Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said that the Lord causes the sun to rise on the wicked and the righteous alike, and he sends the rain 
on the wicked and on the righteous alike. In other words, they don't have it any better or worse than anyone else. But that doesn't change the way it makes us feel, right? The thing that really was eating away at Asaph was this thought that people who he saw as being far worse than him were experiencing a life that was far better than his own. In verse 14, he he says, I'm being afflicted every day. He says, I've washed my hands in vain. This is Asaph again, wondering aloud, man, is following the Lord really worth it? And I want to ask you that question. Have you, have you ever been there? Have you ever struggled through and wrestled with those thoughts? Have you ever looked around at what others had and thought to yourself, well, that, that does, that's not right. That doesn't sit well with me. I mean, that guy, my neighbor, man, he's, he's a total punk. He doesn't go to church at all. He mistreats his wife and his kids. And nah, he just got a raise. He just got a promotion. He's driving a new car. And oh, man, I know them. They're not godly at all. And their kids are all on the honor roll. And here, my kid is chronically ill. Why does she get married and I'm still single? Why does he have the life that I always dreamed of and here I am struggling just to make ends meet? Asaph wasn't the first person to struggle with the apparent rampant injustice that seems to fill this world and nor is he the last. But it's, it's this bitter pill of learning that life isn't fair, that it's something we all have to grapple with because there's something inside of us that tells us life should be fair. Listen to this quote that I pulled from a book that I I was looking at the other day. I think it captures the sentiments of many well. It's a letter to life, and it reads like this. Dear life, it's me again, and this time I'm more confused and unsure of whether or not I can handle what is in store for me this go-around. You've dealt me a hand that keeps me in the game but never allows me to win. I don't know if I should call that unfair or simply punishment for all the wrong I've done. You make sure that each attempt forward lands me in a new ditch. Man, have you ever felt that way? I'm just falling forward. I can't get ahead. If you have, then you know exactly what Asaph was dealing with. He was struggling really badly until. Now this whole psalm, this whole chapter, this this whole story turns and swings on the hinge of what he says there at the beginning of verse 17. But let's back up and for context context sake, begin in verse 16. Asaph is struggling, he's wrestling, he's, he's really questioning his faith. He says, when I tried to understand all of this, verse 16, it troubled me deeply until... Let me, let me hear you say until. Say that on the other side of the screen. If you're in the chat, type until. Until... Until what? I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. What did Asaph do that turned things around and got his head back on straight? He went into the sanctuary. He surrounded himself with the people of God. You might say that Asaph went to church. And what happened when he got there? He says, then, then I understood You see, when he stepped into the church, the first thing that Asaph gained was understanding. And this is so key because you'll agree with me when I say that life has a way of getting our priorities out of whack. We're we're on the right path and then before we know it, we've gotten so far off. And it's so easy to lose sight of what really matters. 
But when I step into the house of the Lord, when I step into the sanctuary, I'm reminded of things that truly matter. I gain understanding. So what is it that really matters that we're continually reminded of when we come to the house of the Lord? This, this concept called eternity. That's what we get reminded of in church. Asaph says it like this, when I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Another way of saying that is to say that in church, Asaph gained an internal perspective. Now, when it comes to money matters, financial planners will tell you that the key is taking the long view. And you can't plan in thinking in terms of what this investment is going to return for you in, in three months or, or even three years. You've got to take the long view and think, what is this investment going to look like in 30 years? Well, in the Bible, Jesus takes that a step further. And he says, in terms of the investment of where you put your time and your talents and your resources and you pour your energy in your life, don't just think in terms of the return on investment that you're going to get in even 30 years. But you need to start thinking in terms of how is this investment going to yield returns in 30 million years? I once heard the word perspective defined as a little thing that makes a big difference. And I like that. I think what we all need is a dose of perspective, an eternal perspective. Because our perspective shapes everything about our lives and the decisions that we make. Years ago, I came across this letter that I think wonderfully illustrates the power that just a little bit of perspective can bring to a person's life. It was a letter written from a college girl to her parents, and here's what she wrote to them. Dear mom and dad, just thought I'd drop you a note to clue you in on my plans. I've fallen in love with a guy called Jim. He quit high school after grade 11 to get married. About a year ago, he got a divorce. We've been going steady for two months and plan to get married in the fall. Until then, I've decided to move into his apartment. P.S. I think I might be pregnant. At any rate, I dropped out of school last week, although I'd like to finish college at some time in the future. Then, on the next page, the letter continued. Mom and Dad, I want you to know that everything I've just written so far in this letter is false. None of it is true. But, Mom and Dad, it is true that I got a C- minus in French and flunked my math class. And it is true that I'm going to need some more money for my tuition payments. <laughs> you see what she did with that letter? She gave them a bit of perspective. And that's what Asaph received when he went into the house of the Lord. He began to see things through the lens of eternity. Again, it's taking this long view when it comes to life. Many of you have no doubt read Franklin Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. And in that book, the second habit that he outlines is those who are successful, those who go on to achieve great things, they tend to share this common characteristic. They all tend to begin with the end in mind. And that's good advice when it comes to starting a business or launching an initiative or beginning a project, but it's even better advice when it comes to life. You see, if you want your life to count for something, then you've got to start with the end in mind. Nobody perhaps understood this better than Moses, which is why he wrote these words. And this is Psalm 90, verses 10 through 12. 
He said, our days may come to 70 years or 80 if strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. So teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Man, as sparks fly upward, so does a man's life. Our our lives are fleeting. And all the pictures and metaphors that the Bible paints of a man's life, a woman's life, are, are these temporary pictures, things like a puff of smoke or a flower that, that's beauty fades. And this is why it's so important, as Moses said, that we learn at an early age how to number our days. It seems like in our world, the priority of most people is learning how to prolong their days, right? By far and away, the biggest expense, the biggest part of our GDP is what we spend on healthcare. And the vast majority of that money gets spent on prolonging the last 12 months of a person's life or end of care life. And I'm not weighing into that debate at all other than to say that here we are as humans trying to eke out just a little more time. Give me just one more day, one more week, one more month, one more year. But think about it like this. Even if we could add 20 years to your life, what is that in comparison to eternity? It's nothing. Our lives are but a blip. Here today, gone tomorrow. And so we need to learn how to live in the short today for the long tomorrow. Perhaps it would be helpful to think about your life as a dot. And from that dot, now imagine a line that extends from the dot. And now imagine that that line just keeps going for an infinite length of distance. The dot represents your life. The line represents eternity. How foolish would it be for us to live for the dot when we have the rest of eternity to think about? We need to live for the line. We need to live for eternity. I'm reminded of the words of Jim Elliott, who was a missionary to the Alka Indians in South America, and they were a cannibalistic tribe, and, and there were a lot of dangers um, inherent with him trying to bring the gospel to this unreached people group. And in his journal, one of the things that he wrote was this, I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. Now, there are some, and perhaps you're one of them, who would push back on this whole concept of living with an eternal mindset. Because there are a lot of people out there who say, man, I know somebody who was so heavenly minded that they ended up being no earthly good. And there are a lot of people out there who think that it is precisely this idea of living for eternity that is principally the problem in our world. As far far back as the 1960s, John Lennon and the Beatles wrote their hit song, Imagine. Remember that tune? And it's this happy little song. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Right? And so we sing that song and we sing along. Imagine there's no heaven. It's just today. Oh, it feels so great. But does anybody want to live in a world where there is nothing beyond the end of this life? No, thank you. I'm not interested in living in a world where everything goes black the moment I pass from this life. The truth is, 
I think the only way to be any earthly good is to be heavenly minded. And beyond that, I would say if you were to seriously weigh the contributions of the men and women who have left the greatest mark in this world, you would find that those who did so did so principally because they lived with heaven at the forefront of their minds. You see, having an eternal perspective helps us in all kinds of practical ways, but I want to outline for you quickly just three quick ones. First, living with an eternal perspective is the only thing that can help us deal with tragedy and get through the loss of loved ones, get us through the loss of loved ones. We all deal with loss. It's an inevitable part of life, but as believers, we have this, this hope of heaven that anchors us. So the Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so while we still sorrow, the Bible is clear according to 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that we don't suffer as those who have no hope. Yes, we still cry and yes, we still grieve, but we do so knowing that every one of those tears is, is outlined with hope, the silver lining in every tear is the hope of the cross, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that we'll be reunited with them again one day soon. Here's a second benefit of living for heaven. It serves as a constant reminder to us that this earth is not our home. I, I don't know about you, but this is an important one for me. I, I am constantly falling into this trap of of fixating my eyes on what's before me and setting my goals no further than the the front of my face. And so I need to be reminded not to fix my eyes on what can be seen, as Paul said, but to fix my eyes on what is unseen for the things which are seen are temporary and the things which are unseen are eternal. We need to be reminded almost daily, I think, of the fact that Man, we're going to be in heaven forever. And we can't take any of this stuff with us. So why spend so much time worrying about it, planning for it, trying to manipulate circumstances so we can get it? I mean, think about it like this. Each and every baby that is born into this world is born like this, right? With clenched fists. It's almost as if without even knowing any better, it's like the baby wants to grab everything and say to the whole world, mine. But by the time we die, as old men and old women, we all die like this, don't we? With open hands. Why is that? Well, by the time you get to be an old man or an old woman, you've learned the most valuable lesson of all. And that is simply that we can take nothing with us into the next life. And living for heaven is a way of reminding our souls of this important truth. Thirdly, Having an eternal perspective helps us say no to temptation. Another powerful one. Listen, those of you who are younger, junior hires, high schoolers, college age kids, 20-somethings, the way to fight temptation is to grasp an eternal mindset. And I say that on the basis of what Moses did. Moses grew up in the courts of Pharaoh, the lap of luxury. He had everything he could ever wish, dream, or desire at his fingertips. But the Bible says that he was able to say no to the passing or fleeting pleasures of sin. And here's how he was able to do that. Because he esteemed as greater value 
what God had for him because he was looking ahead to his reward, Hebrews eleven twenty five. I love how the Bible is so honest in its assessment of sin. It doesn't say that sin isn't fun because let's be honest, sin is fun. And if you're not having fun sinning, then you're probably doing something wrong. Sin is fun, but here's the problem. It's pleasures are fleeting. They're passing. Sin is, I've heard it described like this. Sin is kind of like a sneeze. Man, it feels good on the way out. But after it's done, there's just snot everywhere. (laughs) And so we need to look ahead like Moses did to the reward. We do that knowing that in his presence is fullness of joy, lasting joy, real joy, eternal joy. And those are just a few of the benefits of living with an eternal perspective. At the end of the day, what we really learn from Asaph here in verse 17 is that stepping into the sanctuary of the Lord is like putting on a pair of corrective lenses, right? So many of us, um, we need the assistance of glasses. And and I read um, this past week in studying that some 97 million Americans suffer from myopia. And uh, that's short-sightedness, right? So you can't see far distances and anything that's further than a couple of feet away from you is, is blurry and you, you just see blobs and blurs. You can't really make it out. And 97 a million Americans suffer from this. Of course, it's easily treatable and you can just put on a pair of corrective lenses and it fixes the problem. But as common and as frustrating as physical short-sightedness is, the Bible seems to tell us that spiritual short-sightedness is far more pervasive and its effects are far more damaging in the lives of those who suffer from it. Thankfully for us, the cure is just as accessible. All it takes is stepping into the sanctuary and hearing the word of the Lord. Those things function like a pair of corrective lenses. And I'm reminded once again, yes, Seek the things which are above and not the things that are on earth. For God is seated at the right hand of the Father and that's where my home is and that's where Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am there you may be also. And if I go, I'm going to come back and bring you up to be with me. And Jesus is coming back soon and our lives here are so short and heaven is so long. So live in light of eternity. But how does this deal with that question we started with? What about all the bad stuff that happens? Well, I think it even addresses that. Because when we step back and we see things through the lens of eternity, it it might not make sense yet, and it might not make sense now. But I promise you, when we get there, it's all going to become clear. Now we see through a glass darkly, the Apostle Paul says. But then we see face to face. Now we see in part, but then we'll know even as we're known. In other words, all your questions are going to be answered. Have you ever seen one of Monet's impressionist paintings? I'm I'm sure you have, and they're stunningly beautiful. But as anyone who's seen one can tell you, the important thing with viewing a Monet painting is you got to get some distance. You got to back up and take it in from afar. You get too close, and what happens? All you see are brush strokes and blobs of of paint and smears on canvas that don't resemble anything. But then when you step back, the picture takes its shape and you're like, oh, those are lily pads or, oh, that's a sunset or, oh, that's a pond. And and it becomes clear and crystalline. So too in our 
our lives. Our lives kind of work like that. We look at things close up and we become myopic and we say, hey, there's a tragedy here and there's a car accident there and there's a disaster here and it doesn't make sense, but it's only through the lens of eternity when we get to heaven and we're gonna see that the shadows highlighted the beauty of the scenes of light and the shafts of light so that they could break through the darkness and the picture will become clear. This is what Asaph learned when he stepped into the presence of the Lord. But it didn't completely take away all his questions. I think it's important to land there. As a matter of fact, look with me at verse 26. My flesh and my heart might fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish and you'll destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I'll tell you all your deeds. Here's the deal. The promise of God's presence and the hope of heaven might not suddenly make all of your problems disappear. In fact, they won't. But here's what they will do. They'll be enough to get you through, enough to hold on to, enough to sustain you. It's enough because at the end of the day, as for me, verse 28, it's good to be near God. And what is heaven? If you were to distill heaven down to its core singularity, heaven is the presence of God. And when we get to heaven, yeah, there's going to be streets of gold. And yeah, there's going to be beautiful angels. And yeah, there's going to be no more tears. And yeah, we're going to be reunited with loved ones. And yeah, it's going to make sense of the mess on earth. But you want to know what makes heaven heaven? God is there. And at the end of the day, that was enough to sustain Asaph. We're marching into his presence. We're one day closer to being reunited with him. And if all we have is him and nothing else, we have all we need and more. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.